0: This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot
1: be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and
0: adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Acme.
2: My name's Martin Pedler. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, and it's my pleasure to welcome Eisner Award-winning and current Batgirl writer, Hope Larson. So I'll ask a few questions to start, and then we'll throw it over to you guys for questions for the second half. But um, I guess starting wide, and then we'll go narrow, why comics, of all the creative things you could do, why pick comics?
1: Um, kind of by accident. I at, at college I started studying film, and um, I was interested in, in visual storytelling basically, but I wasn't really crazy about the film program that I was in, so I ended up transferring out of that and into illustration. And late in college, I was studying like a hodgepodge of uh, figure painting, printmaking, book arts, that kind of thing, and putting the work that I was doing online for myself Mm -hmm. and just sharing it with my friends. And Scott McCloud, who wrote Understanding Comics and Making Comics and all those wonderful books, happened to find my online work and encouraged me to draw comics. And that was really all I needed. I just took a crack at it. Mm -hmm. And one thing has led to another. And it's the only industry that seemed to really want me. (laughs) (laughs) So I I feel really lucky to have the career that I have. I mean, I was a comics reader and a comics fan from childhood. But I didn't start actively making them until 2003. Mm. So my junior year of college.
2: What were some of the childhood comics you liked?
1: Um, I, I started reading them in France when my family was there for a year. My dad's a professor and we were there on sabbatical while he was translating this book about economics. Nothing exciting. Mm-hmm. But um, I, my brother and I didn't know any French when we went over at all and my parents just tossed us in the local village school and we had to learn by immersion.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I was seven, so it wasn't like a huge deal. But they were willing to buy me all these comics because they helped m- with my, my French comprehension and my reading comprehension. So I started reading Tintin, mm-hmm. Asterix, um, Uncle Scrooge is really big over there, so I read those. Um, they had My Little Pony comics, which was, I know they have them again now, but mm-hmm. it was very um, novel and exciting for me <laughs> at the time.
2: Uh, can we get the next slide, please? So this is just some of your earlier work. What, when you're first approaching a new idea, what, where do you start? Is it an image, is it a character? What's the process for coming to a new idea?
1: It really depends. A lot of, Lately, the ones that I really click with are, I'm not sure where they come from. They seem to be combinations of bits and pieces of ideas that didn't quite come together in the past. Mm-hmm and you carry those images around with you and eventually they click onto something, like something changes in your life and you're like, oh, I know how to tell that story now. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of my work is more commercial work Mm -hmm. and in those cases, um, it's really about what kind of story I think would appeal to the demographic reading the book, like what issues they're facing with Batgirl It's a lot of tech stuff, Mm -hmm. so like how technology is affecting our lives. Uh, With Goldie Vance, that's just a very—it's just—it's supposed to be a fun book, so it's—it's pure, it's pure fun. Mm -hmm. So car chases, sneaking around, spy stuff, Um, yeah.
2: Um, when I was reading on the back blurb for Mercury, one of your books, and it described you as having a signature touch of magic realism, would you say you, it's something you still have? I don't think have? I have that anymore. No? Like,
1: a little bit. The The next book that I'm, the next graphic novel that I'm writing, which I'm getting ready to start working on in January, which won't be out till 2020, is like definitely a magic realist, magical realist book. But I've been pushed a little bit away from that because it, I think it's maybe gone out of fashion a little bit in mm-hmm. publishing for one thing. And every time I put something, an element like that into my books now, my agent gets upset because she says that makes my work fantasy and my editor will not be happy with it, because which is like a weird answer, but it's true. That's what happens with, with um, anything with magic at all now. Like, Compass South has this one scene where uh, Alex dives into the water and he sees this, this spectral woman down there. And she wanted me to take that out of the book because she said that made the whole book, which is historical fiction, into fantasy. And I refused because it's about the strange things that happen when you're at sea. So,
2: Is this because fantasy doesn't sell? Is that the logic? Maybe.
1: I mean, historical fiction doesn't sell either. So. <laughs>
2: Um, can we get the next slide, please? So, um, A Wrinkle in Time, your adaptation of the much-loved book. When you're working on an adaptation like that, how much of you is in your graphic novel of A Wrinkle in Time?
1: A lot, I think. I was really nervous when I got that job. I actually, I, they offered me the job. It came out of nowhere. They offered me the job adapting A Wrinkle in Time, which is a huge deal in the U.S., because it's just this classic of children's sci-fi and I turned it down because I didn't think I was going to be able to do it justice mm-hmm. and that the internet was going to hunt me down and beat me up. And I, um, they actually came back and talked to me again and asked me to please reconsider, and I did, and I took, I took it. Um, and at the time, it didn't feel like a personal project to me, and I really was struggling with it to even though I, I loved the book and I had a personal history with the book, coming from writing and drawing all original stuff to this felt like I'd failed a little bit mm. but looking back on it, there's so much of me in that book, and the the source material really lends itself to to interpretation because. There isn't a lot of visual imagery Mm -hmm. in it. It's mostly dialogue. So I had so much freedom with the way that I translated Mm. it. It's kind of like a play. I always Mm. talk about how Madeline L'Engle was actually an actress in New York on stage for a while before she started writing. Mm -hmm. And her her novels read a lot like plays Mm. in the way that they're really about, they're about the dialogue and not about The action.
2: Hmm. What changed in between the first time they asked you and the second time they asked you that made you agree?
1: Um, I I realized that I was just turning it down out of fear and that was stupid. (laughs) I should just go for it. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted me badly enough to ask me a second time that maybe they knew something that I didn't know.
2: (laughs) Can we get the next slide, please? So these are some of your roughs from *A Wrinkle in Time*. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked you yesterday if you miss drawing now that you're mostly doing writing, and you basically laughed at me. <laughs> you don't?
1: Not really. I mean, I, I do actually still draw a webcomic. Mm. Um, but I do it at my own pace. Drawing comics is really, really hard, mm. and it's it's like a very it's like manual labor. It's mm. a physical job. It takes a lot of time. It's very isolating because, at least for me, because I I work on paper, I need to be at home in my studio, Mm. not around other people, Uh, and it's it's rough. And I I also just don't love drawing the way that I love writing. Mm. I feel like you have to be passionate about it to put in the work, Mm -hmm. and I just don't feel like I'm passionate enough about doing drawing to go to those extra figure drawing classes to just really study up and like figure out where I'm still struggling with perspective and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I can work with artists who can visualize the stories that I'm writing the way I want them to be visualized. Mm -hmm. They're working at this incredible level. And Mm -hmm. I'd rather just work with somebody who is going to bring their own skill to to my skill and it's gonna be a superior work. That's how I see it.
2: You say it's time consuming. How long was *A Wrinkle in Time from beginning to end?
1: Two years, full time. It's 400 pages long. <laughs> it's, it's big, it's a big book. Um, Do you want me to talk about the process of actually making yeah. it? Yeah. Um, so what I did was I, I wrote a script, a full script, and then I drew the entire book like these pages on the screen Really quickly, I was doing five pages of pencils a day, Um, which is really, really fast. Mm -hmm. And looking at these, they're actually pretty detailed. Then that went back to my editor. We did revisions on these and I went to the final inks and I had to hire a colorist as well because I I didn't have time. Mm. Because we were, at the time, racing to, like, get the book out before the Disney movie,
3: mm-hmm. which was
1: supposed to come out two years after I got the job. And, of course, it's, like, it's now shooting. So I, <laughs> I didn't need to worry about that.
2: Um, how does your process differ when you're writing for someone else to draw as opposed to when you're writing for yourself? Is it a different part of your brain or is it the same?
1: It kind of It's kind of different. If I'm writing for somebody else, then I'm... I, I try and be really, really specific and clear, and make sure that the image that's in my brain is going down on the page. Mm-hmm. And or you know, like I'm not really precious about my writing. I'm more than happy for artists to change stuff if they feel strongly. Often, usually, if they make changes, they're right. Mm-hmm. It's like a pacing thing, or there's too much on the page, or or whatever. If they have a, if they see it a different way, I'm totally open to that. But I think it's my job to offer a rock solid image of the page for them to then agree with or disagree with. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I try and lay out everything that's in the image. I try and like set the scene pretty well. I do establishing paragraphs when I'm doing a new location so mm-hmm. that they can understand what, what the scene is even if we're not seeing everything that's in that paragraph. And I, I do specify shots, mm-hmm. so a close medium wide uh high angle low angle mm-hmm. over the sh- over the shoulder reversal that kind of thing okay. i use the film language just because i think it's helpful in just letting people see what i'm seeing
3: mm-hmm. but
2: that's quite particular i guess for someone who says um that you're not precious about writing that's it's quite a specific level of detail to give to an artist isn't it
1: yeah but they can throw it away okay they that's don't have bad. to keep it. the the, <laughs> the dialogue is what I'm the most concerned with, and the pacing. Mm-hmm. And if if they want to do a different shot choice, usually it's not going to affect things too much. Mm. I'm pretty specific about fight scenes too. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's really about the the emotional aspects of the fight and the like the specific moves. Mm-hmm and how they choose to draw that can vary from the script. Mm.
2: Can we get the next slide, please? So this is Goldie Vance. Um, when you're writing a much younger protagonist, do you have rules about what you let them do, how much danger you put them in? They, do you have strict rules for yourself?
1: Mm. That's a good question. Uh, Goldie Vance is pretty elevated in terms of the action. so. She goes I mean, drag racing. She and goes stuff. drag racing. Yeah. She steals cars. I have her jump out a window at one point. Um, she's she's run away from spies with guns. <laughs> um, I I have her go scuba diving alone. So no, I'll, I'll let Goldie Bates do pretty much anything. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> do you ever get called up on maybe you shouldn't have her chased by people with guns by editors or anything?
1: No, um, I've had people be concerned about her stealing cars, mm-hmm. which like, I get it, but also, are you gonna be upset about James Bond stealing a car or something like that? I, I think just because she's a young black woman mm-hmm. or a girl, uh, people get a little bit more concerned about what she is doing and the mm. moral implications of that, mm. and I don't really think that's totally fair.
2: I like using, what if James Bond did it as your get out of jail free card <laughs> for this stuff. Um, can we get the next slide, please? So let's move on to Batgirl, as this is a superhero symposium. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you were asked to pitch for Batgirl. Can you share with us the details of what your initial pitch was?
1: Sure. Uh, so the way this came together was that I, I did a short story for Gotham Academy Yearbook, and it went really well, and my, my, um, the editors that I worked with on that, who are my editors on Batgirl were happy with it and liked working with me, so they invited me to come in and pitch on Batgirl. And they knew that I was not a a superhero person per se and that I didn't have a history in that world, but they also knew that I was interested in moving into more action and uh, more commercial work Um, So they emailed me and said, hey, we'd like you to come in and pitch on Batgirl if you'd be interested in doing that. And I was like, yes, definitely. And they pitched me this idea of her backpacking on vacation Mm -hmm. and being on some kind of, like, soul-searching quest. And I was super into that because I've written a lot about travel. So it seemed like a good fit. And... um. That was pretty much it. I just wrote a really, like a one-page take on that, Mm -hmm. went in, pitched it to them. Uh, Actually, funny story, on the way to that pitch meeting, I I, like got all dressed up (laughs) in like a little dress and heels and then I locked my keys in the house on the way out so I couldn't get into my car Mm -hmm. and I was freaking out climbed like over a fence and broke into the house through a back window and Mm -hmm. got my keys and I made it pretty much on time (laughs) and I got the job and I felt like that was what Batgirl would do (laughs) so they had to give me the job after that
2: um so you say you weren't really from the world of comics what were your general feelings about superheroes world of superheroes I mean what were your general feelings on superheroes before you took the gig and have they changed now well
1: Back in my 20s, I was very snotty about it, mm-hmm. um, mostly because of the the ownership issues around superheroes because it is work for hire and it's it's licensed work. And back then, I don't think that I really knew how to write somebody else's characters. So by the time I got offered this job, I'd just written so much stuff. Mm-hmm. and I was a better writer and it didn't feel like a huge stretch to be writing a character somebody else had created mm-hmm. who has all this backstory now that feels like somebody did all this work for me and I just get to do the fun stuff mm-hmm. which is taking those characters and putting them in a fun story mm-hmm. and I I have my own work that I fully own in book publishing mm-hmm. so this is just like another facet of my career mm-hmm. and I, I love it it's mm-hmm. a blast
2: In a world where so many writers and artists have come from the fan community, do you feel like something of an outsider as not coming from that really hardcore superhero fandom?
1: A little bit, but everybody's so nice. Um, And I think that actually might be changing. There are a number of Mm -hmm. other writers who are not really, they're not like super fans who became writers Mm -hmm. or they're coming from outside industries. I know like Marguerite Bennett wasn't really a superhero person, and she was, she was a fiction writer and sort of fell into it accidentally, and mm-hmm. she's doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, Julie Benson and Shawna Benson, who are writing Batgirl and the Birds of Prey, this is their first comic. They came out of TV writing. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I've, I, I, feel, I feel very welcomed into this community of mainstream comics writers. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit worried about that, but Mm. it's it's been fantastic.
2: Hmm. Can we get the next slide, please? Here's some examples of your scripting, if you can read those for Batgirl. This is from from issue six from Batgirl, I think. Mm -hmm. The one that's just about to come out. Yeah. Wow, special preview of two pages. (laughs) Um I laughed when I saw you on Twitter saying people had really strong feelings about thought bubbles, which you brought back in Batgirl. What were their strong feelings?
1: Mostly people are psyched. (laughs) Um, I didn't realize they were such a controversial uh, thing to be using.
2: We do very serious narration panels now. We Uh don't do thought bubbles anymore.
1: They're just not the same thing.
2: (laughs) How are they different?
1: Narration to me feels like more of an omniscient. It's, it's narration, you know, Mm -hmm. it's coming from outside of the action. Thought bubbles are coming from inside the action. They're very immediate, and I like that they're in the moment. And you can mix them up with speech, speech bubbles, mm-hmm. or speech balloons, and end captions. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have all that going on because it's they they all work in different ways. Mm. It's just another tool, and why not use it? Mm. So yeah, I, I I think it's super funny that people reacted that way.
2: Um, I guess there is the women in, panel, um, women in Comics panel coming up, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Marvel and DC's recent steps towards more character diversity. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your work plays into that? On Batgirl? Yeah.
1: Sure. I mean, th- the thing that's really happening is that Marvel and DC are realising that people will pay for these stories. So this is like an economically driven initiative, which mm-hmm. is good because there are corporations and that's what makes sense to them. Mm. So more women are reading these characters, more women are going out and buying them and it's it's like making a difference to the bottom line. Mm. So they see the value in hiring somebody like me.
2: Mm. Um, can we get the next slide, please? So you've also made short films. This is your web comic, which started life as a screenplay, right? Mm-hmm. It did. Um, how has it changed in adapting it for comic from the screenplay as you've done it?
1: Hmm. Uh, well, I, I wrote the screenplay like four years ago, mm-hmm. more, five years ago, a while ago. And at the time I was kind of hoping that I could get it together and direct it myself as a, as a feature, like a little indie thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, circumstances conspired to make that not realistic. So, but I, I really, I liked the story and I liked the characters and it mattered to me and I wanted to do something with it. So I've been slowly chipping away at it as a webcomic. Um, ha- was the question, How's has it changed?
2: Yeah, has it ch- have you found new elements to it as you've been adapting it? Yeah, I,
1: I mean, I've been rewriting it a mm. bit as I go because the, the beats on a comic page and the beats in a screenplay are different and, also doing a webcomic and doing it a page at a time you want to have each page feel like a little bit contained mm-hmm. like there's a complete thought on each page mm-hmm. as often as possible so that's really what i'm doing is I'm, I'm tweaking the the dialogue and the action so it feels like each page stands alone a little bit i mm. mean it's not it's not like a, a comic strip at oh. all
2: mm. Um, you've also made short films and film clips, and been regularly confused for Brie Larson's uh-huh. sister, which I gather happens <laughs> quite a lot because you've worked together it in the past. Happens a little bit. <laughs> um, is that something you'd like to do more of?
1: I would like to do more, but uh, it's so expensive to do film and time-consuming, mm-hmm. and right now feels like a time that I really need to be focusing on comics. Mm-hmm so maybe later.
2: Are there unique elements to comics that coming from making, say, a short film that is a sense of freedom when you come to comics?
1: Yeah, because you don't need a crew. You don't (laughs) need money. Um, You just need yourself, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. You're you're only held back by your own limitations as an artist.
2: Well, frankly, that sounds terrifying. I'm quick at the next slide, please. So this is Compass South, which is your upcoming.
1: It's out. It's out. Yeah, it came out in June. There you go. But there is a second part that'll be out in June 2017, called Knife's Edge.
2: If you don't think magic realism is your signature anymore, what would you say is? Are there themes you always return to, whether you like to or not?
1: I don't know. That's. I feel like that's a hard question to answer for myself. Mm-hmm. I think it's easier to see what the, the connective tissue is from the outside. Hmm.
2: So you th- uh, last night you were saying that you don't really look back at your old work. Not really. <laughs> is that because it, it hurts your soul to look back?
1: It hurts my soul a little bit. <laughs> it, it hurts my soul less to look back at um, stuff like Compass South that I didn't draw. Okay. This goes back to my, my crushing insecurity about drawing. Um... <laughs> Because at, at least, like, when I'm working with a really amazing artist like Rebecca Mock, it looks the way it did in my head. hmm So.
2: And uh, I guess, how do you think you've changed as a writer from those early things to say, Compass Sal?
1: Now I'm really focused on on being entertaining and propulsive in my storytelling. hmm The l- learning about button, and therefore, mm-hmm. that storytelling role, really... Blew my mind and changed my work completely, and that was actually not very long ago. That was maybe five years ago. I learned about that.
2: Do you want to explain that in case sure. people don't know? Sure.
1: Um, so there are actually, if you if you Google "but" and "therefore," you will get a really great video by the South Park guys where they explain this. and It's like two minutes long. But the idea is that um, when you're moving from scene to scene you want the word that connects those two scenes to be but or therefore. So you're either undercutting what just happened in your scene or your scene is, what happens in that scene is leading to the next scene. Mm -hmm. Do you wanna add to that? I feel like it's a really simple idea, but it's kind of hard to explain.
2: Um, I guess it's about avoiding and or, so there are just two scenes next to each other that don't have a connection between them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that really changed your writing. You think?
1: Yeah, because it it, it it is one of the things that makes it hard to put a story down. Mm-hmm. And it's it's how you write stories where people are like, "Wow, that thing just like zips along," because mm-hmm. it's going somewhere with purpose. Mm.
2: You said there was a lot of you in A Wrinkle in Time. You are mm-hmm. talking about being more commercial, um, a bit more focused on being entertaining. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's less of you in your more commercial
1: work? Sometimes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you feel that. And it, it kind of... That's like the, the dark side about working with other artists sometimes is that when you're working with somebody and you're not super in sync with them, mm-hmm. it feels like you're, you're losing the story mm. or it's slipping away. Same thing if you're working with a bad editor. Mm-hmm. Um, or an editor who secretly wants to be a writer. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and they're just trying to tell the story they want to tell as opposed to help you tell the story mm. you want to tell better.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that a fairly regular occurrence?
1: No. Fortunately, I, I mostly work with awesome editors. Okay. I've been very, very lucky.
2: Should we throw up some, some questions from the floor? I think there are microphones on the sides, am I right in saying that? Yes, I'm getting the thumbs up. Um, So um, just wait until the microphone reaches you if you have a question, so just put up your hand if you do. There's one down here at the front and one up there in the middle
4: thanks for that um, this won't change anything. I'm sure that everybody tells you you're an amazing artist right <laughs>
1: uh, people are yeah what well, people are very very sweet about that well i think
4: I think if we put up here pages from from gray horses, people would realize what an amazing artist you are right? thank you
1: that's so kind it's It's not that I hate my work so much it's just that the ideas I have are sometimes very complicated and tough for me to execute.
4: Yeah, I understand that. But th- this, this 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 sort of leads on to my question, really, because uh, not only are you good at drawing, but the way you lay out pages is fantastic as well, which oh, is one you. of the great successes of grey horses, right? The 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 breakdowns are beautiful. So the question really is: How do, do you still think in page layouts at all? You've talked a little bit about how you talk about, you, know, you give directions through a sense mm-hmm. of film, but do you still think in that language of comics, which is like the page layout, is that yes. still?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it, not for every single page. There are some pages where I have a very clear visual idea of how I would like to see that executed, but generally it's about the storytelling beats and the emotional beats, um, which can be very subtle. And... Um, leaving about enough space, like keeping the panel count low enough that the illustrator can go in and really make it sing. Hmm.
2: And you're pretty ruthless with word count on a page, aren't yeah. you? Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's, that's actually been another thing that's changed a lot with uh, superhero comics is that I learned that, that uh, is it Ellen Moore, the Ellen Moore rule? Mm-hmm. About the number of words you can have on a page. Mm-hmm which I forget what the number of words is, but you don't want more than like 35 words in a panel mm-hmm. if you're doing a six panel page. Okay. So I, I definitely sit there and I count out all of the words in my speech balloons <laughs> and more than 25 words per bubble. Mm-hmm. And it's been very helpful. Mm. I like rules. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, who else had one up here? Hi,
1: I think your mic is off.
0: Hi there. Um, thanks for coming out and talking. Uh, I wanted to ask, how have you found the experience going from working on primarily your own work to now on Batgirl working in a shared universe environment where your story is connected to other people's stories and what you do will have a relationship with what other creators are doing?
1: Thus far, the, the work that I'm doing on Batgirl has existed kind of in its own little world. Um, I don't even really know what's going on long term in Batgirl and the Birds of Prey. Uh, What my editors have told me is that unless it's a crossover type situation or unless somebody else is using a supporting character that uh, Batgirl can be in all these stories at the same time. Like she can be, she can be in Birds of Prey on Monday and in just Batgirl on Tuesday and they don't Conflict and apparently they use the same wording with with Shauna and Julie Mm -hmm. the Monday Tuesday thing Um, But I think now that I've proven myself a little bit with Batgirl they're starting to talk about me Co-writing arcs with other creators and and doing crossovers and stuff like that. So uh, stay tuned
2: does that take away a little like sense of ownership of a character do you feel like when somebody else is writing them as well
1: no I, mean, I don't feel like I own these characters at all mm-hmm. I'm just doing my take um, I think really if anybody owns them it's the fans
3: <laughs> mm.
2: who else has a mic Up here?
3: Um, yeah how much um How much like communication is there between you and other artists on your books?
0: And how much like influence do they have over what you write? Do you sort of like look at what an artist like you sort of look at do you sort of look at an artist's style and is like that sort of feels like this? I'm gonna try and write dialogue to match it, or I'm gonna try and write a story that feels the same way as the art?
1: Yeah, it, it really depends on which artist and my relationship. With them and how well I know them. Uh, for Rebecca Mock who did Compass South and Knife's Edge with me, those two books, I mean we, we work really closely on them. I've, I've done all of the writing and she's done all of the art but because we have, it's for a book publisher, we don't have the same kind of editorial that uh, I would have at, at like DC. So I'm sort of also in a bit of an editorial role on those books Now that we've done two books together and we're getting ready to do a third, she's actually more involved in the development of that idea than she was with with Compass South and Knife's Edge. Um, With Goldie Vance, Brittany Williams came in really, really, really early in the process. And uh, I mean, she's a co-creator on the book and was really instrumental in developing those characters and the world and how everybody looks and... um, all the race stuff that's in that is is due to her. Uh, with Batgirl, I was kind of in awe of Raphael. <laughs> so I pretty much just backed off and let him do his thing because he's the veteran in that world and I'm the newcomer and I didn't wanna step on any toes. He's like the nicest ever. Um, with the, the next artist on Batgirl, Christian Wild Goose, I... Um, I picked up on pretty early that he was super into these detailed environments and these sort of like elevated playful environments and I've been writing to that because he clearly likes to draw that kind of thing so um, yeah my writing's definitely influenced by what my artists want to draw for sure
2: any other questions there are some hands up here in the middle
0: Hi, you talked for about turning down a wrinkle in time, partly originally, because you were fearful of audience reactions and doing it justice. And now you've moved into comics, which has a pretty charged (laughs) audience, I think one can say. Um, And I wanted to know, particularly in this age of social media and instant reactions, have you found reason to fear the comic audience? How has that influenced your work? (laughs) It's very scary.
1: Um, it's it's a much bigger audience than I'm used to, and it's a very passionate audience. Everybody has an opinion, and you learn really quickly when you start writing superhero comics that people will totally love that book and totally hate that book, and you really can't please everyone or avoid offending mm-hmm. people. Uh, so it... it it's a lot of managing my relationship to social media because if I was just totally listening to every word that, if I was like reading every review, if I was totally like scouring Twitter for people talking about my work, I would never get anything done because I would just be a ball of anxiety all the time.
2: Has there been a moment when you think the fans were right and you were wrong? Um... About a plot development or a, a character, use of a character, or you know,
1: I don't know because I don't really. You don't look. I don't look.
2: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: But I'm sure, probably, <laughs> I, I I do listen to what fans when they tweet directly at me. I I see that usually, unless it's getting filtered out, and I listen to what they want to see in the book. Mm-hmm. If I get a lot of tweets that are like that are like oh, we love whatever character, I really hope they're gonna be around in the next arc. I listen to that, and mm. I try and you know include mm. that character because they wanna see that. Mm.
3: Yeah. Um, thought of related to the other questions you've had on um, on um, Batgirl and um, shared universe of them, that, uh, there's obviously a lot of people who have written back before you and, um, and how much or how little do you pay attention to what's gone before you?
1: I mostly pay attention to the, the arcs right before mine that are uh, that I'm continuing the story from. yeah
2: you didn't go back and read and uh, a bunch of the old no. like uh, when she was oracle or
1: no i i haven't i mean you only have time to read so many issues <laughs> of that girl before you start writing it the, <laughs> yeah. the the deadlines and the turnaround is really quick on these issues uh i do a lot of googling there are wonderful fan wikis out there and we all use them, editors use them, <laughs> writers use them, <laughs> so thank you, everybody who's <laughs> writing those.
2: Does the quick turnaround, has that made you less precious as a writer, you think?
1: Maybe, That that's a hard question to answer, mm. actually. I mean, there is a point when you just have to like, it has to go in on Friday or whatever, and you just have to send it in, but, I, I think it's not that it's made me less precious, but that it's made me work harder to mm-hmm. get as, get those scripts as polished as I can before they're due. Mm. Any
2: other questions? Yep. Um, I guess this is a bit of a follow-on question, um, but your, were, the run of Batgirl immediately preceding yours was such a distinctive take on the character, you know, mm. by chemistry, Brendan Fletcher, and Babs Starr. So, how did you approach making the book distinctively your take after something that was, I guess, so revolutionary for the character?
1: Right. I love their arc, um, and that was really my touchstone for writing this book. How has for how I go about making it my own? I'm just like I'm one person and not two writers, and I'm just different from them. It's not that I'm consciously trying to make. The way that I write Batgirl different from the way they write Batgirl, and more just that I wouldn't know how to write just like they do. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I love that. I love that arc. Mm. And actually, the the next arc, the one with Christian Wild Goose, is gonna feel a lot more like the the um, Stuart Fletcher Tar mm-hmm. arc. Because it's back in Burnside, Christian wild Goose has a bit more of a cartoony style, and it's a lot more playful and um and high concept mm-hmm. than the the Asian backpacking mm-hmm. arc.
2: Can you share the high concept with it with us, or would that spoil things?
1: Uh, well, Babs is returning to Burnside mm-hmm. and also. Arriving in Burnside is Ethan Cobblepot, the the son of the Penguin, who is a sort of like a tech bro,
3: <laughs>
1: maybe evil, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you probably know where it's going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's fun.
2: Who else had a question? This one up
1: the back.
0: Um, uh, with uh, DC Rebirth, they talked a lot about how. A lot of comics were coming back to their roots or thinking about legacy of the character with you coming and it's interesting to hear that they pitched uh, to you that it was supposed to be a backpacking so bring her out of her uh well what was considered to be her home uh do you have any intentions or have they asked you to revisit any parts of her legacy of her past and watch japan first as the first place to for it to go to
1: oh man Uh, I feel like this is a tough question because I could say stuff and then get in trouble for it Because I I don't want to I don't want to spoil or anything that hasn't been announced yet. Um, I Think part of why they asked me to do this this traveling story was that They wanted to free me from all of the the history of the character and keep me from getting really overwhelmed since I was coming in from outside of superhero comics. And now it, we're, we're working more to like tie into um, character dynamics and the history of the character mm-hmm. going back a ways. I, I think that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs>
2: Any other hands up, up the back there?
0: Thank you. Um, you're at a symposium you know, on, on superhero identities and there are a lot of scholars in the audience, and myself included, and they'll go back and look at these kinds of comics and they'll start trying to unpack them for their politics and um, read them in all sorts of creative ways. Those politics can express themselves in, in many ways, but at least two distinct ones, one in the story that's being told and one in the production process. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you think, as, as scholars, we will think about that. I'm wondering if, as you're going through both your own creative process and as you're meeting with and involved with the other people in making a, a, any graphic novel or comic, if you think about your own politics or the politics of the industry, and you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Um, can you define politics a little bit?
0: Sure, so politics can be sort of how you imagine your characters being in their world, mm-hmm. right, and and how you think about gender, or how you think about racial yes. issues. Okay, And, and uh, that can yes. also happen in the yeah, production I, process.
1: We all think about it all the time. I don't think there's a single creator out there who's not thinking about that, maybe to, to the point where they have a hard time doing the work. Uh, I, the conversations I've had about this with like every other creator I know in DMs or on secret Twitter, <laughs> it's <laughs> like everybody's, th- there, there's this huge, there are all these conversations going on right now about um, gender, race, um, xenophobia, um, the, the um, obligation of the creator to the fandom, I think about it a lot. I don't have any answers. I, I think everyone is just trying to do the best they can and, and be as responsible as possible, but it's every, we, we're all messing up all the time. <laughs>
3: mm.
1: And I, I think we're in an interesting time and we're all really learning as quickly as we can. Yeah. It, it, um, For example, uh, the next arc that I'm writing has a significant Alyssia subplot in it, and Alyssia is trans, so I've been thinking a lot about that as I've been writing this, and I, I brought in a trans friend as a consultant and somebody else to be my my pinch-hitting consultant, and I'm doing my best to tell this this storyline in a responsible and not offensive way but I also know that uh maybe the best I can do is is get it like 75% right and people are probably still going to be upset no matter what I do Mm. but I'm doing my best Hmm.
2: other questions up the back there Hi, um, to what extent do you think comics can be educative of community issues such as understanding intersectionality of identity
1: like disability or race, like you mentioned before? So it's a follow on from that question. I think they're super helpful. I mean, for one thing, they make characters from marginalized groups more visible to a mainstream audience. And I think it's a lot easier for people to understand what people from marginalized groups are going through, if they can see a character who they see as a friend going through that kind of thing.
3: Hmm.
2: I saw another hand up. No? I have a question that I forgot to ask before. You were talking about being really specific with fight scenes. Mm superhero comics thrive on fight scenes. Everything has to be turned into action. How is, did you approach that coming from a world of indie comics where perhaps fight scenes weren't quite so important?
1: Well, they're really fun to write. Mm-hmm. I enjoy them. Um, for, for, the, for this Batgirl arc, there's a lot of MMA stuff in it, and that was actually kind of a nightmare because I didn't, I didn't know anything about MMA when mm-hmm. I started writing this, so I got my friend to teach me everything about MMA because he's a huge buff. Mm -hmm. And he sent me all these fights, so I watched tons of fights and read tons of articles and watched tons of YouTube breaking down different fights Mm -hmm. Um, and tried to just understand it that way. When you're writing martial arts is really tricky because the the fight has to make sense on a move-to-move level.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, If you're not making it specifically about martial arts or something like that you can be a lot more open Mm. and and loose with how you're scripting that Mm. it can just be like batgirl punches whoever or she like kicks him in the head and not not like specific moves where i need to go on youtube and find a fight Mm -hmm. and be like this move at like 103 (laughs) is the one i'm talking about
2: And how do you stop those fight scenes becoming just fight scenes? How do you make sure they have an emotional character component as well?
1: I think they, well, the way I write them, they always have an emotional or character component. They always tie into the themes Mm. that I'm writing about. And um, there's usually a lot of talking going on throughout the fight. So hopefully that's like underscored pretty hard.
2: (laughs) Do we have any last few questions running out of time? One more down the front here. Yeah. Um,
1: it's, about, it's about events, right? As a writer, mm-hmm. you, you haven't had your
4: first DC event. Right. So, sort of cross five events. Are you kind of preparing in any way for that? Are you, you imagining how you might respond to a much tighter kind of narrative framework, of what we have to work, work with it, or
1: anything like that? Um, I'm. I am starting, how do I even put this in a way that's not gonna, (laughs) you know, but you can't talk about that. No. Uh, I'm I'm working on an issue right now that is gonna, it sounds like tie into a, a little mini crossover thing and my editors have talked to me a little bit about doing some stuff that will tie into an event but we haven't quite got there yet. Um, it's tricky because it's tricky for me because coming from outside of mainstream comics I have to learn all of the stuff about the other characters as well as the ones that I'm writing because I'm kind of starting from like zero Um, so it's just research and a lot of it's um, figuring out the voices of those characters too but it's fun I enjoy it
2: Oh, one more.
0: Coming from um, uh, probably a position of white privilege, do you have trouble um, portraying those characters? I mean, fair enough, you can bring other people in, but I know specifically with my research and areas that I've been accused of being of anglo white privilege.
4: How can I sort of look at you know, feminist or various mm-hmm. areas? Have you ever been sort of um, approached or, or any comments made with regards to your representations?
1: Um i I do get them sometimes. It's something I think about a lot uh i I don't know that it's possible to get out outside of your whiteness and your privilege in writing um it's It's such a big question uh As much as possible, I run my work past writers of color if I'm writing, if this is like, if we're talking about color in this instance. But it, again, the, the deadlines are really tight. So there's really only so much you can do to get feedback a lot of the time, especially with superhero comics. It's tricky because most of my artists are white most of my editors are white. Uh, it's a problem. Uh, the thing that I've mostly been focusing on for a long time is trying to get writers of color hired. And that it, it's hard and it, it, I'm often unsuccessful. I'm just always trying to get people onto my editor's radar because I think that people from marginalized groups should really be telling their own stories because they're the ones who can tell them correctly
2: Hmm. I think we've got time for one more if there's one more and then we'll have to call it no oh one here Uh, You were talking about uh, magic realism before. Mm -hmm. I was wondering um, if you think that uh, being steered away from magic realism could be because that your editors don't actually understand um, exactly what it is or how people react to it and whether or not you think that uh, it's because how fantasy is perceived, like whether it's perceived it's meant to be, say, like Harry Potter and... Lord of the Rings, it's meant to be in this particular way, and that magic realism is almost shuffled into the same thing, and whether or not you think that uh, the story should be told anyway.
1: I think it's a marketing problem more than anything, uh, where the it, it makes it a little harder to sell a book if the marketing department doesn't really get what it is. Um, and magical realist work is, is pretty, it's like literary. So, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is an issue of like my agent not understanding what magical realism is, or if this is something that's coming out of the publisher and she's, ch- she's like channeling it back to me.
2: You should obviously quiz your agent about magic realism at a <laughs> <the> perfect opportunity. <laughs> Um, I think that's all we have time for. Please join me in thanking Hope Larson.
1: Thank you. You have been listening to an
0: Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com/slash acme online or the Acme website.